Section 13 of G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922, by G. K. Chesterton. Section 13. The Eugenist versus the Man of Science. I should like to add a postscript upon some points that have arisen since my recent debate with the Dean of St. Paul's, commonly called the Gloomy Dean. I have already remarked on the misfortune of this brilliant cleric being chiefly mocked for the very thing for which he ought to be chiefly respected, the fact that he does face the uglier facts of the modern problem. I may add in all sincerity that I not only congratulate him on being exasperated with things, but I even congratulate him on being exasperated with me. I hope I am not flattering myself with excessive egotism, but I venture to believe that I am among the things the Dean dislikes most heartily, and I really have a hearty liking for all those hearty dislikes. I speak with all seriousness when I say that hatred seems to be by far the most Christian thing about him. Otherwise, it's a little difficult, and requires an effort of the imagination, to see him as a Christian, though it would be easy enough to see and respect him as a Confucian, or any kind of stoical and rather hopeless pagan. The curious thing about Dean Inge is that he doesn't seem to say of Christianity, as do many skeptics, that its dogmas are bad but its spirit is good, but rather that its dogmas are doubtful but its spirit is bad. That ethical or essential Christianity, as in the poetic parts of the New Testament, which has had a softening effect on so many infidels, seems only to have a hardening effect on this particular Christian. It would be fun to write a gospel of the gloomy Dean. Left to himself, I can't imagine him having the smallest sympathy with the prodigal son, while I can imagine the very words in which he would exalt the solid superiority of the elder brother. I can imagine every one of the sociological arguments by which he'd show that the good Samaritan was a bad Samaritan. The idea of chivalry, of a mystical respect for the humble, seems to move him by rule of contraries. The idea of the richer or more respectable classes being called upon to bear any of the burdens of the unfortunate or the weak never fails to make him fly into a passion. It would be interesting to guess what he supposes that the saints ever meant by the divine virtue of love. But at least he has the divine virtue of hatred, and that's enough to give him something of communion with the saints. At least he is so far a Christian that he is driven by a sublime passion to destroy, to destroy what he regards as hypocrisy and stupidity, and the strong madness of falsehood, and for that alone I, for one, shall always hold him in honor. But my purpose here is merely to clear up one or two matters on which I have had more light since the last time I answered his questions. To begin with, there's the passage in my book on eugenics, which many reviewers have quoted and exaggerated rather out of its proportionate place in the argument. I mean the phrase about the consumptive tendencies of Keats and Stevenson. The dean did not quote it, but did criticize it, in such a way that I'm tempted to suspect that he hadn't seen it in a book, but in a review of the book. In the book it's quite trivial, and almost a parenthesis in the main argument. The dean charged me with saying that eugenists would suppress Keats and Stevenson, whereas they might be content to sterilize them. To begin with, I never said anything about eugenists legally suppressing Keats. The phrase does not occur in my warnings about eugenic legislation at all. It's a preliminary phrase, demonstrating a doubt and mystery hanging over the whole relation between heredity and health, and between health and happiness. I suggested that even in the clearest and most extreme cases, such as tuberculosis, where caution is most defensible, we do not actually know for certain whether a child will be happy or make others happy. 
I said, what is the use of telling people that if they marry for love, they may be punished by being the parents of Keats or the parents of Stevenson? The dean entirely missed or muddled the point even of this problem, which is not the problem of whether Keats shall be married, but of whether Keats shall be born. He seemed to imply that he ought to be born in spite of eugenics, but not married in spite of eugenics. But anyhow, what I said, or rather what he said I said, moved him to the utmost fury, and he called me the drunken helot of radical sentimentalism. It's not everybody who's been called all that. But if I really had been as shocking as he implies, I should not be entirely unsupported. I imagine that the learned professor of genetics, appointed to give the Galton lecture at the Royal Society, is not a drunken helot. I gravely doubt whether he's even a radical sentimentalist. And I have just discovered that he said almost exactly what I said, except that it was a little more like what the dean abuses me for saying. These are his words. But I would especially emphasize a doubt whether, from the point of view of society, which is that in which we are here concerned, families which have suffered from definite stigmata may not at last contribute their proper share to the success and delight of mankind. We should hesitate to assert that either special susceptibility to tuberculosis or any form of mental instability is associated with genius, either directly or collaterally, but the frequency of such association has not often been noticed, and I cannot deny that it is sufficient to suggest the reality of some positive connection. At least I imagine that by the exercise of continuous eugenic caution the world might have lost Beethoven and Keats, perhaps even Francis Bacon, and that a system might find advocates under which the poet Haley would be passed, and his friends Blake and Cowper rejected. It will be observed that the Galton lecturer to the Royal Society goes much further than I ever did. He is a far more drunken helot, and a much more sentimental radical. I never especially emphasized the doubt about the value of consumptives. Anyone who will read my book will see that it was incidental, and no part of my main argument. I never dreamed of suggesting that a child could possibly be more likely to be a genius through being consumptive. Mr. Bateson distinctly suggests that there may be some such likelihood. I was not talking of a definite eugenic system at all. He does definitely say that there may be such a system, and that it may do the very thing that the dean declares it would never do. He actually uses one of the names I mentioned, and then he adds no less than four other names to strengthen the same argument and as the lecture contains several polite references to Dean Inge himself, I hope that the Dean will respond with equally polite language to the lecturer, in which case this opinion must be judged differently when it comes from him than when it comes from me. The Dean concluded his article by saying that his only comfort in the chaos and ruin of my nonsensical notions, such as the old notion of Christian men bearing one another's burden, was the resolute and rational attitude of the men of science themselves. Well, this is the resolute and rational attitude of one of the men of science themselves. It is the man chosen by the highest scientific authority to speak to the students of eugenics in the name of Galton himself. I should be much interested to know what the dean has to say about him. But there is another respect in which, in the light of this lecture, I should like to add another word. It is quite true that I am a radical in my own understanding of the term. In my sense, a radical sentimental or otherwise, means a man who declines to be a helot, drunken or otherwise. It is surely unlucky for the dean that he took his illusion from the usages of Sparta, the most brutal and barren of historic oligarchies, which did indeed produce something like eugenics, and therefore something very like hell. I am a radical if it means preferring the city of Pericles to the city of Pausanias. And though I do not think I am now a helot, I will handsomely concede that I may be a helot, when the dean's pure republic is established. 
but he is quite mistaken if he supposes that his favorite tyrannies will only be possible in an aristocracy like that of Lacedaemon. Some of the utopians he most denounces are quite likely to give him the utopia he most desires. And here again I have to thank Professor Bateson, FRS, for information and support, for he states most strongly that sections of what was once the American democracy have already begun to play the fool with eugenics, so that a fantastic perversion of science by the state has already begun. If this has captured the casual democracy of America, it will be even more sympathetic to the fussy and official socialism of England. The reason that I should call myself a radical, rather than a socialist, has nothing to do with the stale materialism which seems to move Dean Inge in his denunciation of socialism. It has nothing to do with all the heathen jargon about nature's failures, of which the Dean still seems to be the dupe, and for which Huxley expressed a final contempt forty years ago, when silly people were thus trying to use Darwinism for the purpose of diabolism. My objection to that concentrated collectivist state, for which many sincere intellectuals are working, is that it would do hurt to certain dignities of human nature which must not be destroyed, that it would certainly rob the peasant, that it would probably persecute the priest, that it would make democracy a dream and make government a nightmare, but worst of all, because it might quite well be in the mood to establish the cattle-breeding paradise of the Dean of St. Paul's. End of section 13